Bonnie Wright is a veterinary anesthesiologist and pain management specialist, acupuncturist, and teacher. She got her DVM from Colorado State University, completed a residency in anesthesiology and critical care at the University of California, Davis, and was board certified in veterinary anesthesia and analgesia in 2000. She's also certified in musculoskeletal ultrasound, veterinary medical acupuncture, and canine rehabilitation. She's also certified as a pain practitioner by the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management. Dr. Wright teaches domestically as well as internationally. She practices at the Fort Collins Veterinary Emergency and Rehabilitation Hospital, the Animal ER Care in Colorado Springs, and consults with local clinics as well. She serves on the board of the IVAPM and is a past president. She also serves on the, the Global Pain Council of the World Small Animal Veterinary Association. She's the group leader for the examination committee for the American College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia. Dr. Wright volunteers at the Denver Zoo and provides her expertise in anesthesia, pain management, and acupuncture. In this conversation, we talk about the events that led her to decide to make veterinary medicine a career, what it was like to be the mother of two children while in veterinary school, why she selected anesthesia as a specialty, and how her career has grown to include being active in clinical anesthesia, emergency medicine, teaching, and service to the profession. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Bonnie Wright. Dr. Wright, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Was there was there a discrete time you remember that you knew you wanted to be a veterinarian? You know, it's funny. When I was in elementary school, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. And everyone would say to me, oh, you have to make very good grades. And I wasn't really into working that hard. So I kind of blew it off until um, early college. And then it hit that you, that was going to, that's what you want to do. Well, that's also a story. Um, I had a very bad car accident. I was hit by a car. I was about to tow a friend's car. Um, he was one of my roommates in undergrad and I was hit and knocked down the road, you know, 20, 30 feet. I had a broken pelvis and damaged in multiple areas. And so it, I had to take time off of school to recover. I was going to a liberal arts school in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the time. And so during the semester I had off, all of a sudden I thought, well, what do I really want to do when I grow up? And it really wasn't anything at the liberal arts school. So I used that uh, body healing period of time to realize, no, I actually really want to be a vet. And my grades weren't that bad. So so I could still make it happen. <laughs> nice. So, so were you... Did you have a lot of prereqs to catch up on then? Or? Not really. I was only one year into my undergrad. And so that's all the really, you know, generic classes. So Yeah. Do you feel like, even though it was just a year, do you feel like the liberal arts training that you did has given you an advantage long-term? Oh, I definitely think so. I definitely think so. It was uh, St. John's College where they very much train speech and debate and discussion and separating yourself from materials in order to be able to discuss them. And I think all of those things very much benefit me in my life in general and probably my life in particular right now. I just think that I know the curriculums are so stressed or, you know, for time and, but I just think more liberal arts would just benefit us as veterinarians so much. 
yeah, I'd have to agree. Yeah. All right. So vet school, Colorado. Vet school, Colorado. I did my undergrad in New Mexico. Actually, once I decided I wanted to become a vet, I got my undergrad done in less than two years um, and came up to Colorado. I thought I'd have to apply more than once, but I got in my first time. So I came up with barely having got all my pre-wexed done. I, I hadn't finished my undergrad degree. How big was your class? I think it's 132 or something like that. It was it's still the same, set by the size of the lecture hall. <laughs> nice. I mean, it's yeah. nice that they haven't gotten bigger. I mean, all yeah. the schools seem to have, but yeah. did you enjoy your vet school experience? I did. I did. Um, I was busy. I had both of my sons during vet school. I've always been a big multitasker. So, Wow. Wow. That must have been, that. that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would tell my friends that were like, how do you do it? That to a certain extent, I'm not sure how they did it without them because they kept me from being quite as obsessive as I might've been and let me just kind of learn and go with it instead of having to be a number one. That's a really good point. I guess, you know, my experience was there were just a lot of high achievers that didn't know what it was like to get a B, you know? Yeah. And, and that could have been me, but um, my kids taught me to be more sensible, I think. Oh, that's good. Um, so at what point did you th- think maybe a residency was what you wanted to do? Well, as I got into rotations, I was still having a really hard time deciding whether I wanted to settle on just small or large animal. I really thought I wanted to do horses, but I, I fell in love with small animal medicine because of the depth that I found there. And so as I would do my rotations... Uh, end of junior year and then throughout senior year, I kept thinking, well, I think I want to specialize, but how do I, how do I choose a species? That was a big stickler for me. Yeah. So anesthesia fit the bill. It did. It did. When I realized anesthesia, you get to work across species. I love physiology. I actually TA'd physiology when I was a senior during my time off clinics for the freshman class. Um, yeah, it was kind of perfect. So you graduated with the idea that you wanted to specialize. Yes, I had a hunch that I did. I was pregnant with my second son towards the end of my senior year. So I didn't immediately jump into internships, but I did think that I would be pursuing an anesthesia residency eventually. So how did you prepare yourself for a residency then? Well, I worked doing research at CSU with one of the anesthesiologists and I worked as a postdoc in anesthesia at CSU. They were short two faculty members at the time. So they were actually looking to hire a veterinarian. So they'd have a veterinarian on the floor who was able to kind of jump in and do a bunch of anesthesia. And then I also spent some time in private practice that year. And then just a year later, I applied for residencies. Wow. So Colorado was your first choice. Did you do? Did you apply other places? There wasn't a residency at Colorado, so ah. I did my residency at UC Davis. Okay, okay. So where else were you considering? Would you remember? Well, the only one that I actually applied for that year was Davis. It was a little bit like vet school. I yeah. thought I might have to apply more than one time, and Davis wasn't on the match yet, so I didn't have to go through the match in order to apply there. If I'd had to go through the match, I probably would have looked at some of the other schools that offered residencies, but I was snapped up by Davis. So, 
Nice. Did you did you have connections there then, or, or just through CSU? Um, through CSU, uh, Dr. Mama had um, was on faculty at CSU. She was one of the ones that came during that time that I was covering clinics, and she hearkened from UC Davis and still had a lot of connections there. Did you enjoy your residency? I did. I did. I worked. My residency was about three quarters anesthesia and one quarter critical patient care. And the critical care group was really an active group. It was under Steve Haskins and really helped me develop my love for emergency and critical care. I still do some of those uh, shifts to this day. And I, I loved the anesthesia group as well, but having both groups was really good for me. How many anesthesia residents were there when you were there? They took one per year at Davis, but they had taken two, two years ahead of me. So I didn't have anyone directly ahead of me at two years. Um, But by the time I was gone, we had, we were back to one each year. Now, was that, did that predate uh, critical care residencies or no? No, there were critical care residencies. That's who I hung out with during the quarter of the time that I was doing critical care. Um, and you would not have had to do a master's then, right? Correct. It was okay. the critical care piece was in replacement of the master's program that a lot of other schools do for their residents. Which probably worked out for you better in the long run. Absolutely. The the master's didn't mean anything really at at that stage or with what I intended to do. So the clinical time was actually a lot more important for me. When you hit your residency, were you thinking at all about institutional medicine or was it you're going to take it into private practice? I don't know if I thought that far ahead, but anesthesia was fairly academic in its trajectory at that time. There weren't very many private practice anesthesiologists. So I'd have to say I probably was on a academic path at that stage. Yeah. And then was there, when you finished up, was there a decision like, hey, I'm going to do private practice work or I really want to go academic, but there aren't positions or how did that, how'd that work out? I actually did take an academic track. I was, um, I only applied for academic anesthesia positions and I applied kind of globally, actually. I was, my boys were, you know, elementary school age. And I was seriously considering a position in Switzerland. And then I took a position in the Caribbean instead because it seemed like it would be a good way to both develop my teaching and also pay back my kids a little bit for all the time I was gone during my residency. Wow. So, so how long were you in the Caribbean? I taught there for a year and a half, and then a position opened up at CSU, and I left the Caribbean position to go back and be on faculty at CSU. Did did the did your boys like being in the Caribbean? They did. We would go back for some summers, and it was actually them that got tired of being there and shaking up their lives each summer. So after the two of them didn't like it anymore, we quit going back for the summers, but for about five years, we went back for the summers to teach for one semester. Oh, wow. So when you take the position at CSU, how long have you been out of school then? Let's see. I was just about two years post-residency, which put me, I guess, six years post-vet school. All right. So what was it like going back and 
and being a faculty member at the school you attended, was it weird? It was a little weird when I'd go into those buildings where I had been a student, um, especially for some reason when I'd go over to anatomy and physiology, it would seem it would seem strange to be there lecturing. Um, the vet hospital, it was pretty easy. I think probably because I'd also worked as a postdoc as, after being a student, I, I had already sort of fused into that role before I left to do my residency. Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense that you kind of have broken that barrier a little bit. Yeah. It just would seem weird. I mean, the faculty members that knew you as a student and all that stuff, but. I know. I think to a certain extent, you never quite break out of that. I was a student here role, as long as the faculty still really remember you in that role. Oh, sure. Yeah. So at what point does acupuncture become an interest? Well, while I was on faculty at CSU, I became very involved with chronic pain. As an anesthesiologist, you'll deal with a lot of acute pain, but more and more we would be getting drawn in to address how do we deal with, with chronic pain. And I also helped um, institute and teach a pain course for the graduate students and got really involved in the pain medicine side of things while I was a pretty young faculty at CSU. And whenever you're really diving into chronic pain, eventually you get frustrated by just the pharmacologic options for chronic pain. So I decided I needed to figure out what was up with this acupuncture. And Narda Robinson taught her course um, around, I think it was even with CSU at that time. So I went ahead and took her course so that I could see if I could improve my toolbox for treating chronic pain. And it worked. Yeah, phenomenally. And so then I had to wrap my brain around how it was working and why it had such a bad reputation on the academic level. And, you know, my physiology brain took took work and it's been just one giant rabbit hole ever since. Oh, yeah. So how long were you in faculty at CSU then? Eight years. And then I stayed on just part-time for two years, as I moved into just treating a lot more chronic pain, I would go do acupuncture and chronic pain there a couple more years past that. Mm. So after you took the acupuncture course, you were able to go back and, and use it in the clinic. Dr. Robinson was using it at the clinic at that time too? Um, Dr. Robinson had one or two days a week that she would see cases at CSU. At the time I took the course, I was still full-time in anesthesia. So mm -hmm. I didn't get to practice much chronic pain slash acupuncture during that phase. And it's part of why I ended up stepping back after eight years was so that I could do more to um, really dive in and work on my skills at chronic pain. When I was in the clinics, it was more, you know, intraoperative dentals, face points, some post-operative stuff, but not the same sort of work that I do now. Yeah. So at, at CSU at, at present, are there faculty members who are doing acupuncture? At present, we have a sports medicine group there that has an acupuncturist part-time, but none of the current anesthesia faculty practice acupuncture. And the chronic pain service is um, pretty slim. There's there's not a lot going on with it right now. Uh, um, so you left after eight years, then what? Well, I had been working part-time emergency 
of throughout my time at CSU as well. So I settled into the emergency clinic where I was working and we really ramped up kind of a pain specialty group within that practice. Eventually we added rehabilitation. So it became ER and pain focused. And I spent a lot of my time there. And then I've always spent quite a bit of time teaching about physiology and um, anesthesia, but also the non-pharmacologic approaches such as acupuncture. So my teaching has always sort of interlaced all of the practice that I do. So you went uh, and took rehab training. Eventually. I actually mostly put my shoulder behind somebody who joined our practice who wanted to start rehab and tried to just hang on to being the pain person. But as that rehab practice grew, it became obvious that I needed to to jump in and take on that part too. So a ways into it, I did eventually take the Tennessee rehab program. And then because I'm teaching for the Canine Rehab Institute now, I also um, have gone and taken their rehab program. Did you enjoy both of theirs, both of those programs? Yeah, they were they were quite different. And I liked the Tennessee program that was very focused on some of the data behind what they were doing. But it's also really nice to then come back and see the Canine Rehab Institute program that is more practical and more how to apply these things in everyday life. I think the two together are, it's good they're, they're both out there. So what does your practice uh, activity consist of now? Now I do about an ER shift a week. I do one to two anesthesia case days a week where I go to practices and do their difficult anesthesias frequently for things like dentistry. I spend part of the week working on writing lectures and preparing lectures for my teaching. And then I do about a day a week of treating chronic pain cases. And that's about, I cut that back in the fall from about two days a week. So I'm trying to catch up and be a little less behind. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now that, now this work is divided. I mean, you're, you're at two different specialty clinics, correct? Well, with all of those things, I actually end up at a handful of different specialty clinics. So, yeah. The consulting work does take you to some private practices, though, yeah, for for anesthesia? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. That's something I find um, with with my clients that, you know, this worry about geriatric patients and dentistry, and it's just a myth that we have to keep dispelling, you know, that man, the upside of, of doing those dentals and those older patients is just so much better than the potential downside most times. Yeah, absolutely. I always, you know, try to tell people that, yes, anesthesia gets riskier as you have more disease, which does come with age, but we can manage that risk in a pretty good way. And the risk of that inflammation and infection bombarding your immune system all the time and the pain is something that really has to be addressed and, and we can't deal with it another way. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Yeah. It's just incredible. I mean, to, to try to convince people that, you know, just time and time and time again, I see that my patients go back and get those dentals and, and, uh, that's not something I do, but they come back and they just feel so much better. And it, it's just so worth it. I just wish at least in my area that more veterinarians wouldn't be so, off-putting about the anesthesia part of it. 
And that is the value to having somebody who does anesthesia in the private practices because then they can, you know, put that responsibility on somebody else. So hopefully as more and more veterinary anesthesiologists do head out into the community, this conversation will happen less often. You bet. So what's the state of that? I mean, obviously you're doing consulting, but I I have no clue about around the country. Is that how prevalent is that? It's much more prevalent. Now, frequently those people do end up based at one of the big specialty hospitals, but a lot of them will also do consulting in the area. So I think when I left academia, it was probably less than 5% of the anesthesia college that worked out in practice. And by now, I think 10 to 15% of the anesthesia college is on a private practice track, and it may even be higher than that now. So there is more and more of it. Um, It's steadily increasing. Interestingly, sometimes promoting the value of that is part of the problem. You know, people are used to kind of co-opting the responsibility to technicians and just kind of throwing up their hands and thinking, oh, this one's just not safe for anesthesia. But realistically, someone with the appropriate training can can get very sick patients through anesthesia. So, yeah. And so, t- talk to me a little bit about I, how old is the VTS in anesthesia? The VTS, I believe, is about ten years old, and okay. so that's the veterinary technician specialists in anesthesia, and they're still a fairly small group when you think about the number of technicians that do anesthesia across the globe, very few more VTSs. If you can even have a VTS in your area who is doing some of those critical cases, that's that's a nice alternative to an anesthesiologist as well, because those people are very well trained. Yeah. Would, uh, in your experience, would you see that specialty practices might have both an anesthesiologist and a VTS? Frequently, you do see them together in part because the V. For a technician to become a VTS, they really need to have an anesthesiologist around. So they do sort of form in clusters. Nice. Nice. So um, I'm a big fan of your work. And uh, how have you reconciled uh, the idea that I I really don't feel like we need to speak about medical acupuncture and, and TCM being separate? just a way to, you know, different ways to describe the same thing. And do you, do you bump up against that a lot? All the time. And, you know, one of my students had what I think is the perfect description for this, which is that medical acupuncture and traditional Chinese acupuncture are walking into the same room through different doors. And the, the longer I'm in this field and the more people I work with that have a strong traditional Chinese background to the way they do acupuncture, I have great respect for a number of them that I work with very closely. And and we are walking through the same door. We are doing the same sorts of things. Even if some of the thoughts we're using to get there may seem different to begin with. And it also, Neil, the more I do this, the more when some new physiologic measurement comes out, you can kind of sort of capture something that previously was misunderstood or not understood and be like, yeah, the, the science and this traditional teaching are very collaborative when you give them the opportunity to, and when you're patient enough to let the science catch up. Oh, totally agree. You know, I just think about as we 
continually maybe make an approach to be specialists as acupuncturists and how much, I mean, we really do, even though that might not be your thing, the medical side of it, I think for an acupuncturist, you just have, those are things you have to be conversant in. Right. Well, and we all have to be able to talk to each other. And honestly, if people who are trained the medical way aren't given some language to talk to the people that are trained the traditional way and vice versa, it creates these barriers that I think we've both seen in our world between collaboration and conversation. And, and both sides are losing when that happens. Yeah. And, and you're teaching acupuncture at CRI, correct? I am. Yep. Yeah. And, and your students would be exposed to both, both approaches, I assume. They are. I teach entirely from a physiologic point of view in terms of how they choose points and choose their formula and all of that. But all the way through, we also talk about how we got there. We talk about the value of history and that conversation between, you know, how acupuncture first came to America and where it's gone now that there is a lot more research. And then by the third module where we teach more of the internal medicine approach to acupuncture, it's unavoidable that we're, you know, leaning much more heavily on what we've inherited. So there's, there's a lot of conversation through it. And I also have one of my teachers who has her master's in oriental medicine on humans and helps bring a lot of that wisdom in. She's also extremely conversant on the medical acupuncture approach. So she really helps with that balancing act. Oh man, that's gotta be great. So, so your, your boys are older now. They are. They're both um, in their 20s. One's in medical school and one's a ICU nurse. Wow. Yeah. Great. So, so that's for you. I mean, you, you obviously, you travel and lecture a lot and you're involved in some organized veterinary medicine. I mean, them being older has probably allowed you to travel a bit more? Yeah, I probably do travel a bit more. I traveled you know, still a bit when they were young to stay out on the speaking circuit, but there is more travel now. And sometimes I get to travel for myself now instead of just for work. So that's nice too. So what do you do? What, what, how do you maintain some sort of, some semblance of balance? Well, I am a lover of change, as you can probably tell. So the fact that I work in a lot of different places every week helps me. It also keeps my schedule very flexible and I have a place up at Copper Mountain. So in the winter, I try to ski one, one week a month throughout the late winter and early spring. And then we actually have agricultural land on the big island of Hawaii. And so three or four times a year, I go out there to put in trees and ponds and basically get the land ready because in about a decade, we will retire there. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So how long have you had the property there? Two years. Wow. And how much land is there? 20 acres. That's probably plenty. It is plenty. It's going to seem like a lot to manage, I'm sure. <laughs> right oh, now, yeah. it's all off grid. So we've got the pond in. We had to put in a shed to get water for the pond. Now that I have water, I've just planted a bunch of windbreak trees. And it's, it's a very gradual process, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, just having the flexibility. Are you driving a lot in your in your normal week? Not really. Once a month, I drive a couple. I drive an hour and a half down to Colorado Springs to work a couple shifts and do some teaching and some pain cases down there. 
Um, but most everything I do around here is pretty close to home. So you're working in an emergency medicine shift. In Colorado Springs, I do two days of emergency medicine. And on top of that, I layer some musculoskeletal ultrasounds. I do shoulders and iliopsoas and some chronic pain consults. So I go down and I do a little whirlwind of work down there. How, how prevalent is the, the therapeutic ultrasound like you're doing? I just don't hear about a lot in my area. Um, this is actually diagnostic ultrasound that I'm referring to. Ah, okay. And I okay. do quite a bit. I was paired with at a practice with seven surgeons for the last three years. And so I, I'm really the person that diagnoses the shoulders and the iliopsoas and all of those soft tissue strain things. So it falls into that chronic pain thing, kind of the same way acupuncture did. Sure. So um, you'd be obviously be trying diagnosing via an ultrasound. I mean, the surgeons a lot of times want to jump to a CT or some more advanced imaging, and this is some, you know, a, a lot less expensive and probably, of course, a lot less invasive than. Well, CTs aren't that great for soft tissue, and there's right. one study that showed that MRIs aren't really even as clear as the ultrasounds when it comes to shoulders and iliopsoas. Plus, when I'm in there doing the ultrasound, it gives me the opportunity to inject things in there so I can break up trigger points with local anesthetics, and then I can put in PRP for the tendon strains. So it's both diagnostic and then an opportunity for therapy. And these are usually things that the surgeons don't have a surgical answer for. So they're very happy to have someone to take those cases. Nice. Um, Have you found it difficult to keep up with the day-to-day ins and outs of emergency medicine? Not really. You know, it changes a bit, but it changes the same way anesthesia does over time. So as long as you're out there paying attention, you know, your practice just develops. Sure. A nice variety. And you and you still do some zoo work? I do. I go to the zoo every other week and treat a bunch of animals um, for about four or five hours with acupuncture. Ah, um, I imagine pain work is probably pretty important for those sorts of cases. Yeah. You know, they, the animals are well cared for and they stay alive until they're geriatric. And so being able to treat their pain is important. And the keepers are very attuned to their particular patients and really become huge advocates for things like acupuncture to help manage their pain and keep their activity level up without relying just solely on the medications. Nice. Um, anything I should have asked you that we didn't talk about? I, I can't think of anything. All right. I'll just put in a plug here at the end that you've got three upcoming webinars for CIVT, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, nice, uh, neurologically based webinars that'll appeal to the, those who are interested in that. Yes. Thanks so much. I really enjoy, thanks for taking the time. I really enjoyed talking with you. You're welcome. No problem. Thanks for inviting All right. me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, 
veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.